PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by Eclipse. Eclipse has helped physical therapists streamline their practices since 1985. Eclipse is a comprehensive all-in-one system that handles your billing, scheduling, and clinical documentation. Find out more at www.ineedeclipse.com or call 1-800-966-1462. If you take the studies that did not deliver TENS at an adequate intensity, they showed no effect on pain. And I think that's why there's a lot of conflicting literature out there, particularly in the low back pain world. I believe that the application of these modalities is a skilled application. If you stimulate a specific nerve, then responses from the same nerve should be apparent whether you take these measurements within the stimulation site or within the course of the nerve but outside the stimulation site. Welcome to this PTJ discussion podcast on electrotherapy. PTJ editorial board member Dr. Stephen George leads this discussion. He is joined by electrotherapy expert Dr. Merrill Gersh and authors from two papers on TENS and IFT appearing in the July 2012 issue of PTJ, Dr. Kathleen Sluka and Dr. Mirto Dunavi. And now, Steve George. Welcome to the electrotherapy podcast. My name is Steve George. I am an editorial board member with expertise in musculoskeletal pain. I'd like to ask each of our guests to introduce themselves, and I'm going to start with Mirto Dunavi. Yes, hello, and thank you very much for inviting me to this podcast. My name is Mirto Dunavi, and I am currently working as a research fellow at the University of Strathclyde in the bioengineering department. My current area of research is stroke rehabilitation. However, I conducted research on the hypothetic effects of interferential therapy parameters combinations for my PhD thesis. Great. Thank you, Mirto, and welcome. Our next guest is Kathleen Sluka. Hi, I'm Kathleen Sluka. I'm at the University of Iowa. I'm a professor in the Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Science graduate program. My expertise is in musculoskeletal pain as well as TENS research, and I am an author on a paper published in July in the same issue as Mirto's paper. Great, and welcome, Kathleen. I'd also like to introduce our content expert, Meryl Gersh. Good morning. I'm Meryl Gersh, and I am professor and chair of the Department of Physical Therapy at Eastern Washington University in Spokane, Washington. I'm very active in the section on clinical electrophysiology and wound management, and I am very excited to be invited to participate in this podcast. All right. So what I'm going to do next is just give a very brief introduction into electrotherapy in general is commonly used in physical therapy practice, and there's probably two primary uses for it. The first that comes to mind is augmenting muscle contractions or causing muscle contractions, and then the second would be to modulate nociceptive input with the goal of reducing pain. Electrotherapy has been used in our practice for many, many years, and there are many different delivery methods that go along with that. And today, we're going to at least start off our discussion with talking about interferential therapy, or IFT, and also transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation, or TENS, and we will be talking primarily about pain relief. And with pain relief, there is a bit of controversy in this area. TENS has probably been studied the most extensively in this area, 
and it's been studied enough that there's actually conflicting systematic reviews available. You know something has been studied quite a while when you can get to the point where there's conflicting systematic reviews. Intense is there. Interferential, on the other hand, has not been studied as much, which makes it interesting from that perspective. We just don't have as much data on that. There was one systematic review that I'm aware of that was published in Physical Therapy in 2010 from Fuentes et al., and they basically found a handful of studies. I think they were able to do a meta-analysis on four of those and found that interferential therapy was effective, but only if it was used as a treatment adjunct in comparison to control or placebo. When it was looked at as a treatment alone, it was no different than the control or placebo in the studies they included in that review. So using that as the broad backdrop, I think we are quite lucky today to have the authors from two recent trials published in the July issue of PTJ. One is from Vance et al., which is Dr. Sluka's group, which is looking at TENS and its effects on pain perception in patients with knee osteoarthritis. The other paper is from Dunavi et al., and they took a look at some important dosage parameters for interferential therapy in healthy subjects. So without further ado, I'd like Mirto to give us a brief summary of her article. Thank you very much. So this article is a randomized controlled trial on the effects of different IFT parameter combinations upon experimentally induced pressure pain in pain-free participants. In our study, healthy participants were blindly and randomly allocated to six groups. We had four active interferential therapy groups, a placebo and a control group. Interferential therapy was delivered to all active groups at high amplitude modulation frequency of about 110 hertz and at high to tolerance but non-painful intensity. The pressure pain threshold was measured by an independent researcher who was blinded to the group allocation of participants. The main finding of this study was that interferential therapy delivered at a combination of high amplitude modulation frequency and high to tolerance intensity was not able to produce significant segmental or extra-segmental hypoalgesic effects on pressure pain threshold in healthy participants compared with a control and a placebo group. Okay. So, Mara, what are your thoughts on reading this study? What comes to mind? Yes. Well, I very much appreciated the opportunity to review the study and I want to compliment the authors on the strengths, particularly the precision of the experimental conditions, uh, your commitment to a triple blinding of the subject, the evaluator, and the operator, and your very thorough multifactorial data analysis and discussion. I think it's a very, very strong paper. I do have a couple of questions and would love some clarification from you, Mirto. Would you comment on Give us your thoughts, please, on stopping the 10, in other words, evaluating the pressure pain threshold in the presence of stimulation versus in the absence of stimulation. What were your thoughts in terms of stopping the stimulation during the testing time? Well, we mostly did that for safety reasons, to be honest with you, because we used high intensity, and most of our participants described the sensation as quite intense. So just for safety reasons, we stop the stimulation where we're taking the measurements. 
I appreciate that explanation. Thank you. I have one more question, and that is the locations that you chose to test the pressure pain threshold. And you selected both the ipsilateral and the contralateral first dorsal interosseous, which was a neurologically sensory-related spot, but not within the actual treatment region. In other words, you weren't testing PPT within the confines of the four electrodes. And I was wondering what your thoughts were in terms of selecting a testing spot that was anatomically, if not neurologically, distant from the treatment versus testing a spot that's within the, say, geographical or anatomical area of the electrode placements. Yes. Well, during the experiment, we used the forearm as a main stimulation site, and we wanted to take pressure pain thresholds from tissue structures that would be, in a sense, homogeneous. So if we were taking measurements from the middle of the forearm, that means somewhere between the middle of the application of the electrical current, then there are so many different tissues, tendons, neurons, skin, underneath that area. So we wanted the muscular tissue to be underneath the PPT measurement. And the first interosseous muscle was within the same dermatomal distribution as the area of stimulation. And it included only muscle beneath the measurement point. So that is why we took measurements from there. I see. My thought is that when interferential therapy is applied clinically, it is usually applied to a region of pain and to target a volume of tissue. And we're looking at treating the pain typically with interferential therapy in the region that is surrounded by the electrode placements. So that was just a thought of mine in terms of looking at where assessment was done during the treatment. But I certainly appreciate the homogeneity of the tissue that you wish to evaluate with the PPT. And thank you for those points. I do want to move on to Kathleen's study. So Kathleen, can you give us a brief summary of the article? Sure. So the purpose of this study initially started out to translate studies we had done for the last 15 years from animal models into a clinical pain population. So we did a randomized controlled trial and it was uniquely double-blinded in that we developed a new placebo unit that we could completely blind the experimenter applying the TENS as well as the person doing the assessments, and we had an adequate blinding of our subjects as well. So this placebo comes on for 45 seconds, then ramps off for about 15 seconds, so the person applying it can turn it up, see a motor contraction, and think that the TENS unit is working. So we looked at several different measures. We looked at hyperalgesia measures to deep pressure with a pressure pain threshold similar to what Mirto just talked about. We looked at heat pain thresholds of the skin. We looked at heat temporal summation at the skin. And then we looked at measures of pain. And we looked at pain during functional tasks, like during a timed up and go. And we asked them to rate their pain at rest. So overall, the study showed that we could significantly decrease the pain threshold at the knee joint with both a low and high frequency TENS that was applied at 10% below motor threshold when compared to a placebo. But all three, the placebo, the high frequency and the low frequency TENS, actually showed a reduction in pain of between 10 and 20 on a visual analog scale. So it wasn't as if there was no change in pain, but the placebo was equal to the active TENS. So that's the main findings of this study. 
Thank you. I'd like to hear what Meryl was thinking as she heard you describe the study. Yes. Kathleen, I want to again compliment you and your research team on a truly meticulous methodology. This was so nicely and tightly controlled. You very rarely see the specificity of application of electrodes based upon points of documented lowest impedance. Certainly, we don't see this in clinical studies, and we often don't see it in studies on healthy individuals. I appreciated your team's attention to both objective, subjective, and functional assessments, and also your discussion really intrigued me in terms of relating the pressure pain threshold to a clinical pain model. So I think your study has tremendous potential from a clinical application standpoint beyond the TENS application and the change in PPT. Beyond that, Steve, I don't have any specific questions that... Okay. Um, Great. And I actually wanted to hit on a few things. When we start thinking about the differences between TENS and interferential therapy, I wonder, is it fair to say that TENS has stronger evidence for that central effect, whereas the interferential therapy didn't show that much of a strong effect, at least in these two studies? And could that be in differences in the application, differences in the mechanisms, or differences in both? Steve, I think that's actually a really good question, whether or not they have the same mechanisms or not. My take on that is that the interferential intents actually probably have very similar mechanisms based upon the carrier frequency that you use. So if you use a carrier frequency with 100 hertz, it would be very similar to using 100 hertz tense. The differences may be between healthy controls and an osteoarthritis population. In healthy controls, in our studies, we've been more likely to find effects when you measure right within the stimulation area versus outside the stimulation area. And in that case, you're looking at increases in pain thresholds. But these people don't have hyperalgesia. They don't have central sensitization. And the differences in a patient population may be that they indeed have hyperexcitability and they have central sensitization. And since they don't have them in a healthy control as in this interferential study, that maybe that's why we didn't see that. But if they'd measured within the stimulation site, they might have seen that increase. So you think the lack of central effect in the interferential study may have been with the subject selection and, and less yeah. to do with the mechanisms of the mm -hmm. agent. So, Mirto, do you have anything to add? Um, my opinion is that IFT is a different current waveform from that of TENS, and we cannot be sure what mechanisms are triggered by different currents. And I think that the interference that is supposed to happen with IFT currents is not really predictable or clear whether it happens within the tissues and whether IFT is actually stimulating the tissues in the same way as TENS. And this is what I would like to add to that. Well, it's Meryl. Going off of Mirto's comment, my expectation in that case might have been that when you use the pre-modulated TENS, the single channel being active, in those groups, you could look at those two groups where you had only channel 2 active and you had the current pre-modulated in the instrument as something that is analogous to a TENS application. And in that case, it may be that we would have 
expected to see outcomes similar to the outcomes in Kathleen's study. I'm leaning as well towards Kathleen's explanation that we're examining different types of pain when we're assessing patients with a clinical pain model and pronounced central component is compared to a population of healthy individuals where we're assessing an induced pain threshold. I think that's a really important distinction. I would be very interested, although I know how it feels to, when someone says to you, I think you should you know, go back and redo your PhD research. But it would be interesting to perform Merto's study again and have PPT assessed both extramurally, as she did, and also within the region of the stimulus and compare those two pain thresholds and see if there was a difference. And that might elucidate even more the mechanisms of action, at least within the interferential model. What do you think of that, Mirto? Not the taking away your PhD thing and making you do it all over again. No, 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 no. <laughs> no not, not we'll never get her to agree to another podcast. Thanks so much. Um, my opinion to that is that by by reading the ISTA literature, we see that our results are not so much different from what the rest of experimental IFT literature says. Other people have used pressure pain threshold as an experimental model of pain for testing interferential therapy hypoalgesic effects. Now, whether this is a matter of if the measurement is taken within the area of stimulation, that means within the four electrodes or two electrodes or outside of the stimulation area, if IFT is actually acting with the same mechanism as TENS, then we should not make any difference. Because if IFT is actually acting in the same way as TENS by stimulating, let's say, the alpha, delta, or C fibers, depending on the parameters manipulation, then if you stimulate a specific nerve, then responses from the same nerve should be apparent whether you take these measurements within the stimulation site or within the course of the nerve but outside the stimulation site. So that is my comment on that. Thank you. All right. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about dosage, and I think we'll just kind of cut to the chase and I want you guys to provide your recommendations on how do you ensure adequate dosing based on what you know from your studies and what you've read from the literature. So I'd like to hear what your recommendations are for the clinical listeners who are wanting to make sure that they have dosed their treatments adequately, focusing on duration, intensity, whatever parameters you think are important. And we'll start with Mirto. Okay, in relation to the interferential therapy and based on the results of our study, we cannot make any recommendations for clinical practice. However, we believe that the further clinical studies should focus on the carrier frequency element of the interferential therapy rather than the intensity and the amplitude modulation frequency, but still this has to be tested from further clinical studies. Thank you. Kathleen? I think for years we haven't been very good about looking at dosing issues in 10 studies. Our laboratory has looked at it quite extensively in a number of different studies, and then I've reviewed the literature quite a bit. My recommendation is to turn it up as high as you can get the patient to tolerate it, and we've been able to show dose-response effects in healthy controls by giving different doses, and if you can get it up as high as you can tolerate it, you get more analgesia than if you get it up to just sensory threshold. And under sensory threshold, there's no analgesia. 
We've also seen that if you relook at clinical trials, there's been a number of systematic reviews, particularly two that stand out to me, that have been done by Jan Bajoral, and he's been able to show in osteoarthritis patients and postoperative pain patients that intensity turns out to be the real critical piece here, which he's defining as a strong but comfortable intensity. So you're looking for strong but comfortable. Those studies show a significant effect and a significant reduction in pain. But if you take the studies that did not deliver TENS at an adequate intensity, they showed no effect on pain. And I think that's why there's a lot of conflicting literature out there, particularly in the low back pain world. The second part of dosing was making sure we have a cumulative effect and having it on for multiple days is more effective than a single treatment with TENS as well. So giving it to the patient to take home and having them use it when they are at home and particularly having them use it when they're doing a movement activity or exercising or going to work is probably going to be more effective than having them just sit in their chair and have it on. This is Merton. I agree for the dose specifications that Kathleen said, but I believe that ISA has a completely different mechanism of action than TENS, and this is due to a different current waveform because For TENS literature, what you're saying is absolutely correct, and I agree totally with you that higher stimulation is the most appropriate. I do not Mm. disagree with the dose specification of the TENS, but I believe that IFT is a different parent that does not act in the same way. I think that's an important piece to include and to emphasize that indeed the mechanisms of action may indeed be different and dictate different types of dosing guidelines. Great. And just to link this, I think in some of the ultrasound literature, I think people are beginning to realize that too. I know there was a review in PTJ in 2010 from Alexander and all looking at ultrasound energy and very similar pattern. The the studies that had sufficient dosage were actually much more likely to be positive. So this might be a theme for many of the modalities that have been a little beat up with evidence-based practice. So Meryl, do you have any last thoughts? I think that both ultrasound and electrotherapy for pain control has been underdosed in the clinic. I think we typically apply these in the clinic to make the patient comfortable, not necessarily to relieve the patient's pain. The dosing is important, and the dosing is going to need to be at a strong and uncomfortable level. I think it's appropriate to describe it very specifically in terms of a 10% below motor threshold level. An important piece within the clinical environment is that I believe that the application of these modalities is a skilled application, and yet in many of our clinical environments, the application of modalities is relegated to trained aides that are told to just set the same parameters for everybody. And that's a real problem. And I think that's indeed where we see the lack of clinical outcome benefits in the clinic and ultimately and unfortunately, the falling by the wayside of the use of modalities. I think that the application of TENS in these cases and ultrasound and some of our other modalities is very much a highly skilled clinical decision-making treatment and therefore requires the presence of a physical therapist and the instruction of a physical therapist to at least in the initial treatment phases be interacting very actively with the patient to determine best dose and adequate dose rather than using the modalities kind of as an afterthought after other active treatments have been done. Well, at this point, I'd just like to thank uh, Mirto, Merrill, and Kathleen for their time today and for their contributions to a thought-provoking podcast. 
send us your comments or suggestions about this or other PTJ podcasts via email ptj at scienceaudio.net or voicemail 626-593-7825. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. Thanks for listening. Thank you.